in a world where podcasting rules supreme, you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. I don't know many people that don't enjoy watching gymnastics during the Olympics. Unfortunately, we won't be able to watch them this upcoming summer, but here's hoping for 2021. It's estimated that nearly 75,000 kids in the United States participate in gymnastics. However, there's a risk of injury, and there's also some common myths and misconceptions about gymnastics that may make some shy away from the sport. Today in the podcast, I'll be joined by two pediatric sports medicine physicians who are former gymnasts themselves, and we'll discuss gymnastics common injuries we often see in our clinics, as well as tackle some of the possible myths and misconceptions of the sport to help parents and their kids better appreciate the sport and stay safe in the process. And I'm sure if you're also a gymnastics coach, feel free to listen into this discussion as I know there'll be some things that will be new to you as well. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by two pediatric sports medicine physicians. First is Dr. Tara Blatnick. She is one of my partners at St. Louis Children's Hospital and part of our Young Athlete Center. She received her medical degree from Case Western Reserve in Cleveland and then stayed in Cleveland at Rainbow Babies Children's Hospital for her pediatrics residency and sports medicine fellowship. She is a contributor to MomDocs, a group of physicians at St. Louis Children's Hospital who provide information on various medical topics to moms. Also joining me is Dr. Emily Sweeney. She is an assistant professor of pediatric sports medicine at Children's Hospital, Colorado. She completed her undergraduate and medical school degrees at the University of Missouri and did a pediatric residency at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Following residency, she completed a sports medicine fellowship at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Her research interests include gymnastics injury prevention. She has lectured on gymnastics-focused topics at national and international conferences, and she was also an editor of a textbook published last year in 2019 on gymnastics medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Emily and Tara. Thanks for having us. Hi, thanks for having us. So let's start off with our backgrounds with gymnastics. I was definitely not a gymnast. I was a runner, still am, but I do have a daughter that completed three years of gymnastics and she finished up at the Excel Silver level. So I was at a lot of those meets and a lot of those practices, and I certainly see a large number of gymnasts in my sports medicine clinic. How about each of you? We'll start with Tara. I started gymnastics when I was little, so probably about three or four, and then I competed probably up until about the age of 16, and then I also did some competitive cheer with tumbling and stunting in there too. And then when I was in fellowship, I took care of two big gymnastics gyms in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where I did my fellowship, which gave me uh, a lot of experience there. And then now, since I've been in Missouri, more of it has been on the parent side of things. So my middle daughter does gymnastics and is training for level three right now. So I've spent a lot of weekends at gymnastic meets and being in the gym with her. So I'm seeing it more from the mom side of things at this point. How about you, Emily, your gymnastics background? Yeah, I also um, was a gymnast growing up and retired at age 16. So I had a had to have back surgery. So that took me out. At that point, I started coaching and judging gymnastics. And I did that throughout college and med school. It's kind of a part-time job. 
And then over the last few years, I've more just focused uh, my research on gymnastics injuries. And then I see a lot of gymnasts in my clinic with gymnastics injuries. I like working with them, but I like when they're healthy and not in the clinic better. I agree. I feel the same way. I, I'm actually a little glad now that my daughter's out of gymnastics just because I don't get the the constant ache and pain concerns. Although now that she's starting up cross country this next year, I'm hearing some of those new complaints. And so it never goes away. But I definitely have two well-qualified physicians here to talk to us about gymnastics. And let's start off by talking about injuries we see commonly. I think what would be helpful for our listeners is just talking about what their young athlete may notice or experience with several issues that we'll talk about. And then we can touch on how concerning each of those issues are and some ways that we can treat them, some unique things we can do for a gymnast, because we have to think outside of the box, as we have to remember it's an indoor sport without shoes and we use arms as legs. So let's start off with a problem that's somewhat unique to gymnasts. It's an issue that was actually asked on my general pediatric board exam, not my sports medicine boards. It's referred to as gymnast wrist. So Tara, can you start us off by talking about what that condition is? Gymnasts, when they come into the office, I feel like even if they're in there for a different complaint, if you ask them about their wrists, I feel like a lot of them will still say that they have wrist pain. So I definitely think it's a common complaint amongst all gymnasts, both boys and girls. Typically, when we think about this, especially in the younger athletes, we're thinking about that radius bone and we're thinking about that growth plate and the radius bone getting injured from just being on their hands all the time. And I like to tell them about how whenever you're walking on your hands, you're doing handstands, back handsprings, you're putting a ton of weight through those wrists that they're just not meant to take. And so it ends up causing wrist pain. Kind of just to give our listeners an idea, when we're talking about the radius, we're talking about the side of the wrist that's on your thumb side. That's where most of the gymnasts are typically going to have their pain. And when we talk about this kind of, you know, I think of this as like a stress fracture, just a stress fracture of the growth plate in the wrist. You know, they're going to come into our office, they're typically going to have some pain. How concerning is gymnast wrist for a gymnast? I think from a functional standpoint, it can be pretty concerning for them. But I think the biggest thing as a physician is sort of seeing if they've had any changes that could lead to something more chronic than just sort of an acute, oh, my wrist is a little bit achy, making it something that could affect them for a bit longer. Are there any things we need to worry about in the long term with gymnast wrist? So it can affect their growth plate enough in some cases that it could affect their growth. Now, it's, it's a bit less likely, but it is something to think about, especially in these growing athletes. What would we do typically in order to treat gymnast wrists? I know all athletes, they don't want to rest, but I know that's probably part of what we're going to talk about. Yeah. The biggest thing we talk about is resting from weight bearing on the hands. So handstands, cartwheels, back handsprings, all that stuff that's putting weight through the wrist, they have to really avoid that. And that's just not in the gym. It's also at home. I always try and talk to them about gymnasts are constantly on their hands, even at home. My daughter's doing handstands. She's doing back walkovers and stuff on the floor at our house. So you have to make sure you talk to them about avoiding it both in the gym and just around their house. I will just describe it. I always get smiles from from parents with this when I say basically the way to think about what you shouldn't do is anything that makes your arms into legs. Those are things that we want to try and avoid in this particular condition. Do either of you use braces or casting while we're trying to get gymnast wrists to heal? I typically cast my gymnast because a lot of gymnasts, they start to feel a little bit better if they've been in a brace and then they'll be in the gym because I let them go back and, and do lower body things, even if their wrists are bothering them a lot. So, I, you know, I want them to stay active and, and be happy by doing a little bit of like leaps and jumps. But I know how hard it is to not participate when you start to feel better. So a lot of times I will cast them for four to six weeks and then bring them back and then usually do some physical therapy to help them get all their flexibility back in their wrists and their strength back because we don't want them going back too fast and then causing a new injury. What's typically the period of time that we expect someone to be out from 
gymnast wrist? I think it depends. If it's just been, hey, my wrist has been bothering me for a week or two and their x-rays look good, it may just be a month or two before they're fully back into the gym. But a lot of times these gymnasts, they'll work through pain, which we don't love. So they'll come in and they've had wrist pain for six months and their x-rays don't look so good. So it may be closer to the three, four month mark before they're fully ready to go back and, and fully participate in gymnastics. Yeah, I kind of brace my gymnast that I see a little bit of just saying, hey, this could take a while. Hopefully it won't. You know, if we give it some good time now and we really behave with it, we can get this better quicker. But, you know, if we kind of push the envelope a little bit too quick, we can make it go back. Is there anything that we can think about maybe from a prevention standpoint to help avoid developing gymnast wrist? I think doing some forearm strengthening, some of the stuff that they do with conditioning, including those arms in there as well, can be helpful. I know that some gyms, there's definitely a mixed feeling on the tiger paws or those extension-based braces for the wrist. I've had some gymnasts that the gym totally refuses to let them wear them, but I've had some gyms that make them wear them. So I think there's been mixed sort of reviews on those, but I think that can sometimes be helpful to limit that extension at least a little bit. What is each of your thoughts about that as being a former gymnast and using things like tiger paws? I, I tend to recommend them for the gymnasts I see who have had gymnast risk getting them back, just trying to help reduce some of that load a little bit. Do you think they're truly helpful or practical or do much? I never had wrist problems. It's one of the joints that held up on me really well. <laughs> so I don't have personal experience of using them, but I do for gymnasts who have had wrist pain or gymnast wrists, I do recommend them, at least trying them. It's not a cure-all. I think uh, the physical therapy is the key piece and keeping those home exercises up is really important, but I think it can be helpful. I think we do need more studies and better studies to try to figure out if, if tiger paws are really beneficial or beneficial for certain athletes and if there's something else we can do that could help prevent this even more. That's certainly an area for pediatric sports medicine in general. We have a lot of common conditions, things like gymnast wrists as an example that, you know, we a lot of what we do are, are based on kind of expert opinion, not necessarily that we have a lot of science or research behind it, that it backs up what we do. It's more kind of anecdotal, unfortunately, but definitely an area that we all could do a little better job in, I guess. We'll keep with the upper body for right now. Let's move to a problem that we'll see in the elbow that's got a long name to it that always confuses our patients when we see it, osteochondritis desiccans. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about this problem? Yes. Osteochondritis desiccans, we abbreviate that OCD because it's a big long word for all of us. So I'm just going to refer to it as OCD uh, from here on out. So it's an injury to the bone and cartilage. It's an overuse injury. And we don't fully understand why it happens, but we think it happens due to overuse in a growing athlete. We can also see it in the knee and the ankle, but in overhead athletes like gymnasts or even baseball players, we can see it in the elbow as well. And so these gymnasts will come in with elbow pain. They may have a little bit of swelling or may not be able to fully straighten or bend their elbow. And then sometimes they even have uh, what we call mechanical symptoms where they'll get some popping or feeling like their elbow gets stuck. So those are all concerning things that make us think, oh, maybe this kid has an OCD. And where would we typically expect to see their pain with this problem? Usually it's on a, a part of the bone called the capitellum, which is on the outside part of the elbow. If you're holding your hand down by your side with your palm facing forward, that's what we call anatomic position. So then the outside part of your elbow away from your body is, is where your capitellum is. And so we often will get an x-ray and usually we can see these spots on x-ray, but a lot of times we're also going to get an MRI to, f to further look at the, the OCD. 
Just to kind of explain to our listeners as far as why we're as doctors worried about getting an MRI on them for this, what, what are the potential issues that we can see with OCD in the elbow? The MRI helps us determine if we think this lesion is going to heal on its own or if it's going to need something more invasive like a surgery. The MRI will tell us, hey, this this looks like the body's going to heal it. We just need to really rest the elbow either with a brace or you know, just, again, not using your arm like a leg and then doing therapy. But sometimes the, the bone and cartilage lesion actually becomes loose. And if it looks like it's starting to become loose and become like a loose body, then we know that's not going to heal back where it's supposed to go on its own. And so then we're referring to one of our surgical colleagues to talk about different surgical options to treat this. And that's why I think from this particular condition, we need to be careful with this because it is something that can definitely lead to a surgery in someone. And, you know, when we talk about getting to surgeries for patients that, you know, there is hope, obviously, that we get them back to competing in their sport, but there's always a possibility that we may not. Can we think about some things maybe that we can do to help prevent this particular problem? As I mentioned, we don't fully understand why these happen in certain athletes and not others, but we do think that limiting impact, especially when kids are going through a growth spurt, can can help prevent them. If a gymnast is going through her growth spurt, making sure we're not doing a ton of new skills that cause extra impact on that elbow. And then also making sure they have really good flexibility and strength in their shoulders and wrists, because if they're not able to align themselves in a handstand position correctly, then they may be putting extra stress on their elbow. So making sure we're looking at a gymnast, not just at their elbow, if they're starting to get some elbow pain, but looking at the whole chain and and seeing if there's something else going on that could help prevent elbow pain down the road. And I think that's an important one when we're talking about trying to prevent. I look a lot at the shoulder in this just as like it would in a thrower who we see this particular problem in, and I see a lot of strength deficiencies there. And obviously, the concern is if they're weaker up high in their shoulder and they're doing stuff making their arms and the legs, similar as what we see with hip weakness that can cause knee and ankle problems. If we're not keeping that particular area strong, then they're going to get into what we call a valgus position, which means that their elbow buckles inward, and then that actually compresses the bones together on the side that we're talking about on that outer side of the elbow. Elbow, which is what we're trying to avoid that unnecessary impact through there. Certainly, that's something that hopefully people are looking at when you're getting evaluated by a healthcare professional for these problems, because we can address those types of things. Hopefully, we can make this less of a problem for that particular athlete when they come back. And hopefully, in the gym, we're also emphasizing and not just focusing on core and all that and really working on those other parts of the extremities we need to make sure we're keeping strong. Let's uh, switch to the spine. Emily, you talked a little bit about that that was your career ender, your retirement thing, but gymnasts certainly get their spine in positions that the majority of other human beings never do, or at least not on a consistent basis. So this next problem, I I know I've seen a ton in almost any sport. I don't know a sport yet that I've seen in young athletes that I have not seen someone come in with this particular problem, but we know that it's a higher rate in gymnasts due to the extreme arching of their back or what we call hyperextension of the back. And that problem is a stress fracture in the lumbar spine or the lower back. So Tara, I'll let you start and then Emily, you can chime in and kind of give us experience if that was your particular problem. Yeah, for sure. So back pain, as you said, you know, very common in this in this population, as well as in people like dancers and things like that that do a lot of arching. It does tend to be overuse. So we definitely see it just developing over a period of time and not necessarily being something that they notice you know, immediately when they do a trick in the gym, but it definitely probably related mostly to that arching activity that they do. So if you think about gymnastics and I think about sport or tricks that I see my daughter doing and other people in the gym. I think about back handsprings, back walkovers, all those things that really put that back in that extreme arching 
mechanism. And so that puts a lot of load on that lower back and can cause those stress fractures to happen. How would we typically expect, like if a gymnast came in or you have a, your daughter or your son may be a gymnast, what would they typically kind of complain about? I feel like especially at first, whenever they first start developing, it'll just be a little bit of achiness, but mostly when they're doing those tricks specifically. So they'll say, oh, when I go to do my back walkover, like I really feel this pain in my low back or my back handspring. And then I feel like if they let it go on long enough, it starts to sort of invade other things like landings and things like that, that aren't necessarily related to that arching or even just when they're sitting at school. How do we usually figure out if someone has a stress fracture in their back? Typically, we'll start with an x-ray to see if we can see it on there. But I will say, you know, there's a fair number that aren't able to see on the x-ray. So doing the MRI, I think at this point, is really the best way to get a closer look at it. I think the other helpful part about the MRI is that you're not just seeing, you can also see what's called edema or sort of irritation of the bone as well, too. So they may not have progressed on to a full stress fracture, but they may just have some irritation in those low back bones that could be leading to their pain. You know, we'll look at x-rays. We sometimes will get an MRI. And then, so say we found a stress fracture in their back. What's the typical course of action from that point on? We really want them to start with rest, which they don't really tend to like. And this really means rest from pretty much everything. So they can still do some conditioning and things, but we really try and keep most of their activity down, including landing, running, and most of the tricks that they want to do. Initially, you know, whenever I first started, I feel like I was probably underresting them a little bit. So initially, I would start with about six weeks or so. And then after sort of talking to some of the spine docs, they seem to want to rest them a little bit closer to sort of two to three months, especially if we see a full stress fracture. Some of the kids that haven't progressed quite that far can probably get away with closer to six to eight weeks before we sort of reassess and see if they're ready to move on to physical therapy. And I think that's an important point is that you will get lots and lots of different opinions potentially as far as how long someone needs to be out after this injury. Even in the sports medicine world, there's lots of debate and that can be between us as primary care sports medicine doctors. It can be between the orthopedic and the spine surgeons as far as how long exactly someone needs to be out. My typical protocol is that from start to finish before I'm getting someone back to normal activity is three months. I have not had great success getting athletes back sooner without recurrences of pain. But the problem is, is, is one is, is the bone healing, but then two, it's making sure that we do some things to help prevent them from getting back. And that's where, to me, the physical therapy part of this is really important of making sure we are uh, correcting any deficits they may have in their strength or flexibility around the muscles in their spine and the muscles that support their spine, the hips, those types of areas there to make sure that when they do go back, the muscles can do more of that work and the spine isn't doing all the extra work because the spine is doing a lot of work in situations like gymnastics. But how about either of you... You have different kind of timeframes that you give your athletes as far as getting back into activity? I think it depends on exactly what I'm seeing. If I see more of a chronic looking spondy that doesn't look like it's going to heal bone to bone, we're just trying to get scar tissue in there. Sometimes I feel like I can start physical therapy a little faster, but I also feel like I have some really, really great physical therapists who won't progress the athlete back to gymnastics until they're pain-free and uh, feeling really good and getting really strong. Now, if it looks like there's a lot of edema on the MRI, you said, Dr. Blatnick, with the irritation of the bone, then, you know, I'm hoping that will heal and go away. So they may be resting a little bit longer. But I do usually tell my gymnasts it's about a three to six month recovery to fully get back to the gym. And and I know that seems like a really long time. But as you said, Dr. Halstead, if you go faster, a lot of the times they are coming back, you know, a year or two later with more back pain. and, And then we have to start the cycle all over. 
Yeah, I would say the same thing. So I usually say about three to four months is sort of the sort of the going thing at the beginning. But you know, as you said, Dr. Sweeney, if there if we know there's a lot of edema there, then they may be resting a little bit longer because we have a good chance of getting that edema to calm down and then potentially doing a little bit better once they sort of get going into physical therapy. We know that stress fractures in the spine can be complicated in the sense that a lot of them unfortunately don't heal. And what we mean by that is they may not heal where bone is healing back to bone. And then we can lead to what we call a non-union. And for the listeners that are listening to that, that means the bone hasn't physically healed back to that together where it's like all one piece. So it looks like there's basically still a, a crack there. You know, I stress with my families, I don't get super excited about that. I think if I remember correctly, there was a study I read that 50% of the US gymnastics team, female gymnastics team had stress fractures at some point in their career and were doing things at a very high level. And I reassure them that that, that we don't if we can get to that point where we can get it to heal, great. But if it doesn't, it's not necessarily the end of the world as long as we've addressed other things because there are some people who have this condition that they're born with at birth. And so, and we know that those people can still do activity and oftentimes be pain-free. But there is one consideration we have to talk about. And that's where if you get a stretch fracture on both sides of your back and now you basically don't have the front and back end connected and they can actually, the bones can move on each other. And you want to talk a little bit about that particular problem? That is actually what I had. That's called spondylolisthesis. So the stress fracture in the back is called spondylolysis. Like you said, if there's a fracture on both sides, then there's possibility of the bone moving or um, slipping forward. And that can cause lots of long-term issues and more severe issues acutely as well. I had progressive spondylolisthesis and had to have surgery because it kept slipping more and more. And I was starting to get some weakness in my foot and some pain radiating down my leg. Uh, and so they had to go in and, and put screws in to hold that in place. You know, I always tell my gymnasts and my other athletes, that's what we're trying to prevent is we don't want you to get to a point where this is a career ending injury. We monitor them very closely, especially if they have a stress fracture on both sides or if they have started to slip a little bit because we don't want them to get worse. Absolutely. And I think one thing to stress with that too is that even if it does slip some, fortunately, we do want to monitor those kids, but the vast majority, fortunately, do not go on to the point where they need surgery. But it is something that we need to be certainly cautious of, especially in an athlete who puts that stress on that spine on a regular basis. But what do you guys do as far as bracing? That's also another controversial area as far as do you brace an athlete or not? I know certainly from gymnastics, if you were to put them in a brace and try and have them compete, it's kind of hard to do that with the brace on. But just in the whole treatment process, do you, either of you use bracing? I'm not super big into bracing. I will use a soft lumbar brace just for comfort initially. I've noticed that a lot of them like to wear it to school so that when they're sitting, it really helps with their posture. And I feel like it does help their pain a little bit. But that's really all I do in terms of bracing. And really, by the time they're ready to go back to sport, I don't really end up using a brace really at that point at all. And I treat it almost exactly the same. I rarely use a hard brace and then the soft brace for comfort. Or if it's kind of a tactile reminder of hey, I'm not supposed to be doing certain things in the gym or you know, at home. So sometimes I'll use that on my kids who are a little forgetful. That makes us three for three because that's my same approach too. So that's good. We got some consensus here on this particular issue. Let's uh, move down to the lower extremities and we'll talk about the heel. A common problem in gymnasts is something we call sievers, or this gets a lot of debate as whether it's called sievers or severs. I've actually looked this up in a medical dictionary. It actually technically is sievers, the one that I have, but I know some people will call it severs. We also have a long medical name for it. It's called calcaneal apophysitis, but sievers works fine. Emily, let's get your take on this disorder. 
I call it Seavers as well. It's super common, not just in gymnasts, but we see it in lots of young athletes. Usually it's in our eight to 14 year old kids who their growth plates are in their heel bone is still open. So a lot of times I will, when I'm explaining this condition to families, I call it the kid version of Achilles tendonitis. Most adults have heard of their Achilles tendon and they know what tendonitis is. And in kids, the growth plate where that tendon inserts, it's called the calcaneal apophysis, as you mentioned, there's irritation of that growth plate because that tendon is pulling on that growth plate. Every time they run or jump, that Achilles is pulling and it causes that irritation, which is really painful for the gymnast. I kind of describe it as getting a, a double whammy. It's getting pounded on from below for the growth plate, and then it's also getting yanked on from above. So it's got a it's got a double force to put troubles through it. If we have that particular problem, what are some things that we're going to see that that athlete's going to have troubles with? A lot of times they'll have trouble with jumping or running or dismounts. Anytime they're they're doing that pounding activity on their feet, that's going to be real painful. If they land short, that's going to be painful. Or even just in clinic, if we have them heel walk, walking on their heels, that is, is very painful for them. You know, you mentioned the Achilles tendonitis. I get a lot of athletes that come in or their parents come in saying that my kid has Achilles tendonitis. So certainly we hear that a lot, even though it's actually Seavers. The other converse of that is we hear a lot of families tell us that they think their kid has plantar fasciitis, which is not a very mm -hmm. common condition in kids. But similar thing, it's just the location of pain that we wind up seeing more of the problem and also more common being common. We don't tend to see a lot of the degenerative problems of the tissue like the plantar fascia in, in young kids, fortunately. But what would you typically do to help treat these kids? Pretty much all of our athletes, a really important piece is stretching. So a lot of times kids are starting to grow a little bit when they get this. And so making sure they're stretching their calf muscles, so the gastrocnemius and the soleus, is really important that they do that every day before, after practice, as much as they can. So stretching is the first piece. And then our athletes who wear shoes, we typically recommend that they wear heel cups. So a padded, usually a gel or some kind of soft material in their shoes. Now, gymnasts can't do that because they're barefoot uh, when they're participating. So I typically either recommend a cheetah heel cup, which is like a slip-on ankle brace with a heel cup built in. And then sometimes I've had gymnasts who don't like that. So there's another brace on the market called the X-Brace. And so sometimes kids find more benefit with that. And I'm actually doing a research study right now, looking at the two braces and trying to figure out which one works better. So hopefully pretty soon we'll have some evidence of, hey, the Cheetah Hill Cup's better or the X-Brace is better or they both are great. Hopefully soon. I'll be looking forward to hearing that one because that's one thing that I've had questions on for a long time is which one works better. You know, they, they kind of work a little different ways of the way we think about it, one providing that cushion, the other one kind of supporting the arch. And so it'll be interesting to see what your research turns out to show. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll discuss some common myths or concerns about participating in gymnastics. Shield was introduced in 1965 in an edition of Strange Tales, featuring Nick Fury. It was billed inside comic books as the greatest action thriller of all time. And it's safe to say that secret acronym international intelligence collection endeavors would never be the same. Another, even greater episodic series is ready to take the greatest action thriller of all time mantle. And we hope you'll be listening. Don't miss the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, reviewing each and every episode of ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. bullet point by bullet point. Check it all out right now at agentsofshieldpodcast.com. That's agentsofshieldpodcast.com.
Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it all out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. So we're back with the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, and we've been discussing the sport of gymnastics and some common injuries we see. I have Dr. Tara Blatnick and Dr. Emily Sweeney with me today, and we're going to switch gears now and talk about some common myths or concerns that parents may hear about participation in gymnastics. Let's start with the real common one. So you get the the fun one, Emily. Does gymnastics stunt your growth? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. If you watch gymnastics during the Olympics or even at the NCAA level, you think, man, all these young women are so short. But there's really no evidence that gymnastics stunts your growth. Uh, What we think happens is that gymnasts typically self-select for that sport. So if you think about basketball players, you wouldn't say, oh, playing basketball makes you tall. No, the better basketball players are taller naturally. The same thing happens for gymnastics. The gymnasts who typically do very well are usually shorter because their center of gravity is lower, and so that makes flipping a little bit easier. There is some evidence that high-level gymnasts grow a little later than their peers, but usually they reach their same adult height that they would have reached, and and we can kind of guesstimate that based on their parents' height. That can give you a sense of how tall they should be. And, you know, I would also say just because your parents are tall doesn't mean you shouldn't do gymnastics. So I always give my gymnast the example. So there's a famous Russian gymnast in the early 2000s named Svetlana Horkina, and she was considered super tall. Now, she was five foot six, so she wasn't, you know, a giant by any means. She was a very average woman. But if you love gymnastics and that's the sport you want to do, even if you're taller than your teammates, you should still keep doing it. And absolutely. I mean, it's, but, you know, the thing to think about, you know, that height part, that height's going to come in their their early teens anyhow. Mm-hmm. There's no reason that they can't do gymnastics when they're younger. And if they do decide that it's not their thing or they just things change as they start to get taller, then obviously you can switch out then. But it wouldn't be a reason obviously to exclude the sport altogether. Exactly. All right. How early should one consider starting gymnastics? And we'll let Tara answer that one. You know, gymnastics is one of those sports I feel like that starts even in that early preschool age. I mean, they're just starting with little, you know, mini tumbling classes and things when you're even two or three years old. So I think it's one of those sports that definitely starts a bit earlier. I think most kids seem to start in that early elementary or sort of, you know, late preschool type period. But I do think it's something you could start at any age or any time if you wanted to. But gymnasts do tend to peak sort of in that mid teen range. So most gymnasts tend to have started whenever they were younger. But as long as you're well supervised and you know you like doing it, you can get into the gym at any time and start doing recreational type gymnastics. And I think, you know, the thing to remember is they're not going to be doing crazy stuff in the gym early on anyhow with your your two, three, four year old. It's going to be simple stuff that they're hopefully able to do just do on their own. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of it's really good for kids just to learn motor coordination and things. So it's awesome for that at that age. For sure. One thing that we neglect too often is our motor skills and kids. 
So what about training loads? So what's appropriate amount of time to be in the gym? Because gymnasts obviously are at a whole different level than most other athletes. You know, I've seen this vary at our local gyms here in St. Louis at the varying levels that you move up in gymnastics. So we, we've given out the rough guidance for kids that they shouldn't practice or compete more hours per week than their age. And I think every gymnast on this planet would violate that constantly. Emily, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this is a, a really hard topic because like you said, most gymnasts are doing many more hours per week than their years in age. Some elite gymnasts are training 30 plus hours a week. You know, it, it's, a, it's a number of things. I don't think there's a specific number for each level or each age group that's going to work for everybody. But I think we have to look at a number of things. So one is the hours they're training. But I think also we want to look at the number of impacts and number of spine extension skills that they're doing. So, you know, we want to look at quality over quantity. So just because you're in the in the gym for a certain number of hours doesn't mean you're doing the same amount of training and hard skills as someone else. We have to look at both of those things. And then I think the last thing we want to look at is, you know, when I was a coach, you know, I, I think I made some not great decisions of, well, this is what my coach trained me to do. And so that's what I'm going to make my gymnast do. We want to take a look at the culture and say, hey, how can we figure out a smarter way that keeps our athletes healthier, either by decreasing the number of hours or decreasing the number of repetitions and keeping these gymnasts in the gym and not getting injured. I don't have a great answer for you on what's the appropriate amount of time. I think we have to kind of work on it and do maybe some trial and error even to see what we can figure out to keep our gymnasts safer. And I think it's important for us all to realize too, when we say that, you know, someone's going to a practice for three hours, we know that there is a lot of standing around time or a lot of observing time, especially since you're usually practicing at least at the younger level with a lot of other kids at once, oftentimes at a gym, rather than doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one individual things. Even though they may be at the gym for three hours straight, they're certainly not doing three hours straight of workouts. Exactly. There's some waiting in line and, you know, just watching, you can learn just by watching your teammates and, and seeing the corrections that your coaches are giving. I totally agree. I think we have to look at the whole picture. Another concern in sports is where, and especially for gymnastics, there is emphasis on aesthetics and body appearance. And we get concerned about developing bad eating habits and disordered eating. So Tara, can you discuss that a little bit? You know, as you said, with gymnastics and sports like ballet, you know, running and things like that, there's definitely sort of this emphasis on wanting to be lean and thin and thinking that you can do a better job if you're if you're thinner and you can do better tricks or, you know, jump higher or do more twists if you can, if you're lighter. But I think, you know, actually I would say that I feel like that's still there, but I would say if you look at gymnasts like Simone Biles, I think we're starting to see an emphasis move at least in the US towards, you know, strength is a good thing. So if you look at her, she's got super strong quads. She's a very strong athlete. I think that at least I would hope over the last couple of years, there's been some move towards valuing more of the strength as opposed to sort of that leanness. We've seen, you know, even as recently as this week that coaches have come under fire for concerns for fat shaming and things like that. So it's still definitely out there, which is, which is really concerning. Are there any things that either of you would say, you know, if they're, if you're a parent, things that would make you concerned that there may be an issue going on with overall eating or disordered eating? I think one thing I would be concerned about is if the gymnasts are getting weighed in the gym. That used to be a common practice is that they'd get weighed sometimes every day. And I don't think that is a necessary practice and a recommended practice. That would make me a little bit concerned about what's going on in the gym is if, if the athletes are getting weighed. 
How about anything kind of like things that you may see that your son or daughter may be doing that may be concerning for this? If you feel like they're starting to focus too much on their food and, you know, being overly concerned with what they're eating, that would be a concern. Or if they're trying to maybe even exercise additionally outside of what they're already doing with long hours in the gym, then that would be concerning as well too. The reason why we bring these things up and talk about these things is there are definitely long-term health consequences of poor eating habits. And so we want to keep our athletes healthy. And I think it's important, you know, especially when you're talking about a sport where there are a fair amount of hours in the gym. And as Emily had mentioned that we have, you know, the, some of the elite gymnasts are up there 30 plus hours in the gym. It's getting your body fueled to participate in that sport adequately. And so some of it may be unintentional is just, you're not feeling your body for the amount of calories you're burning for the exercise you're doing. And then you run into troubles that way. So I think it's just obviously making sure we're emphasizing good eating habits and then looking out for things that may be causing too much overemphasis on body appearance. And one final thing we don't want to forget about, but I think often happens is that gymnastics is only a girl's sport. We certainly know that isn't true. So either of you want to talk about some concerns we may need to think about for any boy that may be interested in participating in gymnastics. Obviously, they all are susceptible to the same injuries we talked about earlier, but any other special considerations? In Colorado, we have a lot of boys' gymnastics, which is great. I've actually learned a lot more about their skills and their events because that was not something I was around growing up very much. I think for boys, one of the more common injuries I see more than in the girls is shoulder injuries. Many of their events require more upper body strength. So they have, you know, the rings and the high bar and the parallel bars and pommel horse. So making sure they have really good strength and flexibility in their shoulders and then making sure they've, you know, mastered those basics. This happens in boys and girls, but a lot of, you know, athletes want to just move to the harder tricks and the cooler looking skills, but having those really strong basics is important so that they don't get injured or have poor technique when they go to those more difficult skills. But I have a one-year-old boy and he's definitely going to do gymnastics. (laughs) Not yet, (laughs) but soon. Just so our listeners are aware, you know, because getting into gymnastics, I wasn't aware of all the nuances of the differences between what events there there are for boys versus girls. Can one of you talk about the differences between those two? The women, which seems to be the one that's most familiar, has the four events. So they have beam, they have uneven parallel bars, which means there's one high and one low, and then they have vault and floor. The boys have some that are sort of similar, so they have vault as well, as well as the floor. Their bars are a little bit different, so they have the one high bar, so just a single bar, and then they have the parallel bars, which are two bars side by side. And then they also have some other strength events, mostly focusing on the upper body, which include rings and pommel horse. Yeah, so six versus four, so I don't know. Is that fair? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) You two being former gymnasts, is there an event in boys that you would like to see the girls be able to do too? That's interesting. Hmm. I would say maybe high bar, even though it's so similar to their uneven bars, just because I think you can do even bigger skills sometimes on the high bar because you don't have to worry about hitting the low bar. So I would say the high bar, but I think we should get rid of pommel horse. That would be my recommendation. I don't, Why? Find it, I don't think it's very interesting, <laughs> but All I guess right. I don't understand it. It's probably my main problem. It just looks very difficult. And I think that's the problem for me as being a now former gymnast dad of going and watching meets is I still 
have a hard time understanding judging. And, you know, Emily, you could probably shed some light on this as being someone who's been a judge, but, you know, I, I find it so weird. And we'll be sitting up there and all the parents are talking with each other. It's like, well, what made that one get two tenths of a point lower than the other person? And that's, that's my hardest part with a sport like gymnastics is just the subjectivity with that. Even though there is objectivity to it, we're just not probably privy as much to the subtleties of that. Yeah, definitely. So to, to become a judge, you have to study and take tests. So it's not like anyone can just go in and do it. So you do have to have kind of that eye for seeing the nuances. And as you mentioned, there are these objective rules in the code of points of, you know, this deduction gets this amount taken off, or if you make this error, you know, you lose this much. But within that is built in some subjectivity. So, you know, for example, bent knees, you can get up to three tenths. So if your knees are slightly bent, it's a one tenth. Um, And so that's why sometimes too, if there's more than one judge, the judges come up with different answers and then they'll average the scores which, you know, it, it can be difficult. And, and I think judges have a really hard time. I'm kind of glad I don't do it anymore because it is pretty difficult to stay up to date with all those rules and making sure you're judging accurately. Thank you so much to both Dr. Tara Blatnick and Dr. Emily Sweeney for joining me today to discuss gymnastics. Their expertise certainly was evident. You can check out our full podcast library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. You can follow us through our Facebook page and also on Twitter at HYAPod. Please leave us feedback and rate our podcast. And we are so ever grateful for you taking the time to listen to us today. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.